Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, I'm Bhaskar Lakshminarayan, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management in Asia at Julius Baer. And I'm joined by our Head of Research Asia, Mark Matthews. Hello, Mark. Hello, Bhaskar, and hello to our listeners too. In the next 25 minutes, Mark and I will go through what's happening in the economy, how investors should be positioned, and talk about a few other things. We'll also talk about three structural trends that go beyond the ups and downs of the economy healthy living, recycling, and electric vehicles. And we'll talk about investing in resilient companies, companies that can adapt to the winds of change because they have a history of doing better than the rest. And lastly, how to find resilient companies because winds of change continue to blow around the world. So without much ado, Mark, I guess the place to start would be where we are in the economic cycle. Thank you, Bhaskar. Indeed it is. And the American economy and most other Western economies, for that matter, they had a flash crash, then they had a flash recovery. Just to use Great Britain as a case in point, its economy fell 22% in the second quarter of last year because they got hit so badly by COVID. But then they were among the fastest to vaccinate, open up again. So in the second quarter of this year, their economy rebounded by 22%. And Baskar, according to the Bank of England, in the last 300 years, not in wars, not in recessions, not even when they had to go cap in hand to the International Monetary Fund. Interesting. Yeah. Did they have such big swings? So it would be very strange. I think, in fact, we could say it would be downright disconcerting (laughs) if they kept growing at 22%. I mean, no economy anywhere grows that fast for so long, right? Absolutely. So the growth is going to come back down, just like it will in other countries, by the way. And we know that because we get these things called purchasing managers indices every month. The pulse of the economy, as they call it. Indeed. It's a survey that asks companies how much stuff they're buying. And if the number is above 50, it means they're buying more than they did the previous month. Well, the UK purchasing managers index got to 62.9 in May, the highest it ever got to in its history. And as of last month, it was back down to 54.8. Now, the reason that these purchasing managers' indices are widely followed, as you say, Bhaskar, they're the pulse of the economy, they have a good track record in leading GDP growth. So it won't come as any surprise when GDP is announced next month and it's less than it was before. That's okay. It had to peak some time. And the important thing is, We're forecasting GDP growth in Western economies to stay quite high. In the UK, for example, just because I talked about it earlier, we're looking for 5.4% next year. That's more than twice the average of the last three decades, Baskar. And for the US, we're looking for 3.4% GDP growth next year. That's 40% higher than the average of the last three decades. Now, Baskar, since we're talking about the economy, I think we should say something about inflation. A little is good. It gives people courage to buy houses, cars, keeps the economy purring along. But when it goes up a lot, then people spend more, so they save less. They might panic and buy a lot if they think prices are going to keep going up very quickly. 
and then central banks have to raise interest rates to a high enough level to get them to stop spending. Well, the most recent U.S. inflation reading was 5.4%, Baskar. So can you imagine if it stays that high and the Federal Reserve had to raise interest rates to that kind of level? Well, for sure, it would cause a very bad recession. So That's true. Thankfully, we don't think inflation is going to stay that high. In fact, we think it already peaked. As simple as it sounds, when GDP growth slows down, usually inflation comes down too. And when prices get too high, people usually just buy less. So if you look at commodity prices, because of all assets, they have the closest fit to inflation. They've basically been trading sideways since May. And we think that uh, for the asset class as a whole, it's at or close to its peak because there's signs of demand slowing down. And we've noticed some things are happening that happened around previous peaks, like speculators hoarding, for example. Then, Bhaskar, I just want to say one last thing about inflation, and that is the digitalization of the economy is still happening. And it's a profoundly disinflationary force. Absolutely. We've mentioned this so many times in the past. We did. And the risk of repeating myself, just think about shopping. When you have a store, you pay rent, you pay staff, utilities. When you're selling online, those costs go way down so you can charge less than the people selling those things in stores. Bhaskar, this podcast we're doing right now, I think it's an excellent example of how technology is disinflationary. And these, what do I call, I don't know, technology-driven productivity gains that keep inflation down are going to stay strong because companies increase their investments in technology so much during COVID. So Bhaskar, that's the economy, but could you tell us about what it makes sense to own in that kind of environment? And the point that you made, Mark, on purchasing managers' indices peaking in March, I know we still have inflation, a little bit of niggling inflation around, but as you said, it's going to be more transitory than otherwise. But if you were to look at what happens post a peak in PMI... In the previous peaks in PMI. The previous peaks in, in PMI. And if you were to take that as sort of your guiding light here, typically markets tend to trend down. Yeah, when PMIs peak. But then... The experience this time has been anything but. We've seen markets go up 15% since March. And I think there's a, if you had a look at why that happened, I think one thing really stands out. We've never experienced this kind of an earning surprise ever before in any cycle. I think analysts and most people who sort of predict earnings were caught way, way below in terms of their estimates. Certainly were. And you know how the rebound in economy has been very sharp. Part of the problem that we talked about on the inflation side actually comes from the same thing. I think the recovery has been really sharp. And I think some of that is reflected in, in prices as well. Now, the other part of it is how much we have changed as a world as a, in terms of the composition. It's become more and more technology. Technology is becoming endemic to almost every business. And I think today, if you were to look at technology-oriented companies in the top 10 names of the S&P 500, Uh they are not one or two anymore. I think it's eight out of 10. Yeah. That's significant. Eight out of the top 10 S&P 500 companies are technology companies. Absolutely. If you went 30 years ago, it was one out of 10. Yeah. If you went 20 years ago, even, it was just three out of 10. That's a big change. Uh, Or maybe four. But you basically effectively got the bulk of the top end now being technology-dependent or technology-dominant, so to speak. And what it also does is, unfortunately, events like COVID 
highlights this even more or makes that disparity even more. Yeah. So what happens in a time when we cannot go to be in front of people, the normal way of business is... is we use technology. We use technology. So actually, the market might not mind if COVID kind of lingers for a while because we'll, we'll just have to keep doing more and more of this stuff, which is good for the technology companies. The unfortunate side effect of that is that the disparity that it creates. Uh -huh. So that's something, again, which is what I think the governments effectively are trying to try and equalize in some form yeah. with various policy making. But it is true that the longer COVID stays, the better it is for these companies which are able to enable these remote kind of working environments, shopping environments. So technology tends to benefit and will continue to benefit. So the question that normally gets asked, we've done so many of these and we always get this question. I know what it is. They're too expensive. <laughs> yes. Or are they too are expensive? They, are they too expensive? And I think when you look at one or two of them, yes, they are. I mean, you do have a couple of them that are trading, I think, at possibly past the triple-digit price earnings, and some of them maybe even in the mid-40s. But if you look at the really the large technology names, you would find that they are in their 20s to early 30s yeah. in terms of price earnings. Amazing. They've got still a reasonable amount of growth momentum. Oh, they do, yeah. No, they're growing in the high teens to up to the mid-30s, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. top uh, six. And we've said this in the past as well, that growth is a scarce commodity. And somebody who's growing at in the mid-teens to the high, maybe 20s, is still a phenomenal name to own. Absolutely. And, and I think that's precisely why we are seeing these. And as these are exactly the kind of things that we want to own at this stage of the economy, you asked what we should be owning. We should be yeah. owning these growth-oriented companies and after the recovery cycle, when the GDP starts to come down, they still tend to benefit because they just have inherent growth. And historically, what does not do so well in this phase are companies that are tied directly to the economy. And you mentioned some of them, which is already seeing the impact, uh, like materials, industrials. Yeah. But growth does well. And growth does well because it comes with earnings. It also tends to be one of the things that we'll talk about later, resilient, adaptive kind of companies. Yes. So they tend to do well the both innovators. in good and bad times, and momentum carries them through. Well, those companies that we just mentioned, the big tech companies, they have things that people basically want to buy in good times or bad, don't they? Absolutely. And that's the thing. It's, it's got the momentum angle. It's got the earnings yeah. angle. It's got the quality, adaptiveness, all yeah. of that. But it's just not restricted to technology is clearly one big space. Mm -hmm. But there is another place which really shines out in a, in a yes. time like this. I think I know what you're going to say. Uh, I'm going to ask you to talk huh. about that, Mark. It's our home country, so to speak. It is indeed. It's Switzerland because, Bhaskar, especially what happened, I should say, after what happened in China, I think people are looking for places that have a long track record of rule of law, respect for property rights, good corporate stewardship. And Switzerland is one such place. And unlike most European markets, its stock market isn't dominated by cyclical companies. Two-thirds of the Swiss stock market is the kind of quality, defensive-type companies that you just mentioned. And Bhaskar, speaking of China, I think there's no time like the present to confess to making a mistake. And for us, that was China. We, Mark, if I yeah. may, it was not so much a mistake as saying we did the absolute right analysis, yeah. but the outcome was different. In fact, everything we liked about China in terms of being profitable, the big technology the big companies, technology companies digitalization of the economy, 
everything was the same reason that China has actually targeted these places you're for so, new policy. You're so right, Bhaskar. That's the irony is they were so profitable that they sort of caused the ire of the authorities. And, and unfortunately, you know, the American technology companies, they're still going to profit from the digitalization of the U.S. economy, actually the economy of the whole rest of the world outside of Absolutely. China. But we can't say that in China anymore. So I think that for a lot of people, after they saw what was happening in China, the initial reaction was to find a safe harbor. For us, that's Switzerland. But Bhaskar, not everybody wants to have their money in safe harbors only. And a lot of people think Asia should have a place in a global portfolio. After all, there's more people living in Asia than the rest of the world combined. True. Thankfully, there are good companies in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, India. So the first thing we did after we downgraded our recommended rating for China in July was we made a basket of high-quality companies in Asia outside of China that have good growth. All of them are in the technology sector, either hardware or software. And you know, Bhaskar, what we realized when we put their share prices together in an index is that they were already outperforming not only the rest of Asia, China too. They yes. were outperforming the whole thing before COVID started. And since then, they've still been outperforming, in fact, even more so. So we like those kind of high-quality, good-growth companies in Asia outside of China. And, and as I said, we've got a basket of a good, healthy dozen or so. If I could ask you something on India, it's always been said it's more cyclical or expensive. Yeah, it Do is. Do you have any arguments there? I have one, I do, in the sense that, yes, it is more cyclical, but... I think about a quarter of the Indian market is IT companies, either a fifth or a quarter. And what I noticed recently, because I hadn't been doing my homework for a while, but when I went back to look at them recently, they're not just business process outsourcing companies now. They do data analytics, artificial intelligence, digital marketing, cloud, internet of things, agile, blockchain, the list goes on. And Bhaskar, there's a big pipeline of IPOs lining up to list on the stock market in India. Over 100 companies, in fact, and a lot of them are pure internet-based companies. And, and I think basically you would know more than me about this, but the Indian government is telling American technology companies, look, we know you've done very well in our market. There's still a lot more business for you, but we want you to grow in our economy by sharing some of your business with locals That's going true. forward. And, and what I hear anecdotally is that's starting to happen. Then, Bhaskar, if I could say one last thing about the country that I find quite fascinating, it's the population, because India's working age population overtook its dependent population in size three years ago. And demographers say it's going to stay that way until at least 2055. Now, Bhaskar, when we look back at other countries and we see the years where they cross that similar threshold, we see something very interesting. Japan, it was 1964. In the next five years, the Tokyo Stock Exchange doubled. Korea, it was 1987 that the working age population became larger than the dependent age population. In the next five years, its stock market went up 120%. China, it was 1994. The stock market rose 75% in the next five years. So for India, what I would say, that year was 2018. Since then, the market is up 50%. I would argue there's more to come. I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. I think India has a long way to go in terms of, and you're right, it's that golden age when more people are actually contributing to society than taking away from it or reliant yeah. on it. 
we've talked about a lot in equity, but I think we'd be remiss not to talk about fixed income too. And uh, tell us what our thoughts are there. Okay. Mark, as you know, fixed income has been a bit more of a challenging period uh, this year. It isn't really our top favorite uh, pick in terms of as an asset class. Equities still remain. And we do believe that equities possibly are going to stay that way for even the foreseeable future. But having said that, it's not that there are no avenues to to invest in the fixed income world. As you know, we still have over mid-34, 35% in our allocation towards fixed income. So if I were to look at it, I think what has happened here is it all depends on the policy making. So you've got to pay a lot of attention to what the Federal Reserve is saying. And they've constantly now reminded you that while there will be a tapering event, it's not going to really mess around with rates. So they're not going to move the rate environment from where it is today. And part of that, again, why are we talking about tapering and not rates? Again, as part of this goes back to the job market. You know, you've seen sometimes, this is again where estimates have gone the other way around. Economists thought around 600 new jobs would be created in the month of August, but we came in at 250,000. Yeah, that was a shocker. Absolutely. And, but we also said that the economy is booming, right? Which means... It can't be because there are not job opportunities. So demand is not the problem here. I think there's like 10 million jobs available, job openings in America today. Absolutely. So it's not a question of job availability. So we've got to figure out as to why is it that people are not returning to jobs. And part of it is the dole, right? It's the exceptional unemployment benefits. It's how much the governments have done to support people during these tough times. And that has sort of deterred people from taking on some of the jobs because they just think it's much better to sit at home and take the dole. Now, I think we're going to start seeing a rollback on some of these things. And I think that will lead to, obviously, a bigger uptake. Of course, the other equation is that the Delta situation, in, when it looks when you look at variant. COVID, the Delta variant is still something to be concerned about, looked at. So it's something that we've got to live with. So the jobs that should have been created last month, maybe they're still there. It's just that they're going to be full later. Now, All this means is that there's going to be more volatility. There's going to be this constant back and forth in terms of some policy noise, a hit and miss on the job numbers, uh, which is going to have a bearing on the bond markets. So our best positioning today, given where we are today and talking about the next six months or maybe a year, is to look at what we call as crossover credit. And what does that essentially mean? It means looking at the lower end of the investment grade and the higher end of the high yield. High yield, yeah. So we need to be careful because the high yield has got a lot of uh, noise, especially in Asia. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, it's not been a dull summer, so no. to speak. And uh, now the Asian high yielding space is almost yielding twice as much of the US at 8% now. Do you think uh, things are going to get better? I think it's going to get better. One is, I think, all said and done, I think we are still marching ahead in terms of this whole COVID situation. In Asia. In Asia. Yeah. Well, it's true. I look at you know some of our neighbors, their infection rates are coming down. Indonesia's has collapsed. Absolutely. Uh, the vaccinations are being ramped up. And look at a place like uh, Singapore, for example, which is leading in terms of vaccination rates. While as we know that the challenges of opening are going to remain across the world, but I think marginally we are going better, getting better, not getting worse. And the second thing is China. Now, China wants, as we can see, the policy making is going towards having a much bigger middle class. Yeah. And this means that they still have to address some of the basic things, owning the property. That's a basic thing for a middle-class person is to own your own property. Absolutely. And again, therefore, which is why a lot of the policy making in the past was really restricted to the property sector. 
Of course, it's widened a bit right now, but and I think that's something, again, I think we are possibly going to see the end of soon rather than later. And again, Asian high yield is not necessarily all property. And even within the property sector, there are great names to own. So I think selection, stock or bond selection, becomes very critical in this process, right? There are also other opportunities like, uh, be it in Macau, be it Indonesia. India is a great example, again. We talked and about how, how we upgraded India from an equity the standpoint. Equities we did, yeah. But I think uh, India has a great high yield metrics as well, Interesting, uh, Mark. So yeah. when we look at it, yes, they tend to trade a little more tight as compared to the other yeah. names like Indonesia or Malaysia or even China for that matter. Having said that, cash flows are improving. In corporate India, yes, they are. So I think overall, it's a great place to be. I, we still believe in this crossover credit. We still yeah. believe in the opportunities set in Asia. So we do think there are things to do in the fixed income world despite the fact that it might be a bit more volatile. Well, thanks for that, Pascal. You know, you mentioned in the beginning that we should talk about our next generation ideas, those really important trends that outlast the economic cycles. And the three that we chose this time are healthy living, recycling, electric vehicles. Absolutely. And they, they sound unrelated. But if there is a common theme, it's that COVID has accelerated them all. And so with healthy living, part of its diet around the world, there's been a rise in the consumption of processed food, ready-to-eat food. It's not fresh. In the long term, it's not healthy. So that takes us to fresh and organic food, which are, of course, growing in popularity. And then around the world, people are eating more protein, but meat is very energy-intensive. And there's the obvious ethical considerations around meat that more and more younger people are thinking about. That takes us to so-called meatless meat. And then, Bhaskar, what we notice, especially in the emerging world, there's been a big rise in the consumption of fats. And in China, for example, the average person consumed 70 grams of fat a day 20 years ago. Now they're consuming over 100. But I believe you and I could be guilty of the same, my, my dear Bhaskar. Are, are, you going to, are you going to pass up a greasy plate of kuetiao? I'm not going to pass up on kuetiao, but I do think that people are becoming more aware of eating fat. And by the way, with COVID, people aren't as active as they were. A lot of people are just sitting around more. That's not good for their health. So anyway, that means sportswear, sports equipment, personal care. And then the last thing I would just say with healthy living, believe it or not, is pets. Because yes. mental health is a topic that's become much bigger. And Big one business of the now. businesses we've identified as benefiting from that is pets. Believe it or not, they're good for our mental well-being. So anyway, Bhaskar, there's a lot of things to invest in related to healthy living. Then the second one, I just want to touch on recycling. The amount of household waste produced globally has gone from 1.4 billion tons in 1991 to 2.2 billion tons. That's still a problem. It's a big problem. It's not going away because it's being driven by population growth and prosperity growth. Well, the world population isn't going to peak for another five decades, is what demographers tell us. And presumably between now and then, people are going to become more prosperous too. So household waste isn't something we can reverse. The best we can do is handle it properly. And outside of Europe, almost nobody's recycling more than 50% of their waste. In fact, in developing countries... That's a shocking yeah, statistic. It's mostly just dumped into landfills or into the ocean. But as countries become wealthier, adhere to more international protocols, that should change. And best way to do it is what we do here in Singapore, Bhaskar. First, they, they burn the waste, filter out the damaging stuff. By the way, in the process, they generate energy, and they reduce the waste volume by 85% when they burn it. 
and then what's left they can bury on a small island. And then there's packaging. It's interesting. You'd think glass is good because you can reuse it so many times, but it requires a lot of heat to recycle. It's heavy to transport. Its carbon footprint is it's actually bigger. bigger than plastic. That's true. The problem with plastic is you have to reuse it. And because it's so cheap, a lot of people don't do that. But if we did do that, it would actually score quite well with the environment. And aluminum can be very environmentally friendly too. When it's recycled, it consumes 95% less energy than primary metals. So recycling is definitely an industry that can be invested in. There's a lot of options, as you can see. Last but not least, Bhaskar, and there's a link between recycling and the last thing I want to talk about in our next generation themes, electric vehicles. The link is the batteries. Batteries, okay. Yeah, because the batteries that go into electric vehicles have minerals and metals that are very valuable, and they can be recycled. And the global market share of internal combustion cars, that's the kind of car that you and I drive now, that's going to fall to less than 25% by the end of this decade, and then to about 12% by the middle of the next decade. So people are going to be driving electric cars in the future. There's no doubt about it. Europe's leading the way, in part because they're more environmentally conscious, in part because they get great incentives from their governments. But it's not all about incentives. Uh, China scaled back its subsidies some time ago. And so far this year, electric vehicle sales in China are three times higher than they were from January to August last year. Now, one thing I would say is that, curiously, there have been no incentives to buy electric cars from the Biden administration. <laughs> and it's a bit curious because saving the world was a big part of his platform. Americans like big cars. And so one of the weaknesses is that there hasn't been a product offering for them recently. But last year was a real tipping point, Bhaskar, because it was the first year that a lot of mid-ranged offerings came on the market. And there's now two trucks, yes. electric trucks in America. And they have some quite interesting features. They've got big batteries, over 100 kilowatt hour, and they have plugs the same size as normal plugs. You yes. can stick it right into a conventional wall socket. Wall socket. So, so this is a big space when it comes to investing. It ranges from the miners of the metals that go into the batteries, and then the batteries themselves, then the technology suppliers, the car companies themselves, the recyclers. And so, Baskar, those are all things that we think should be invested in for the long term because they're just as big as what oil or cars were 100 years ago, or televisions 70 years ago, or the internet 20 years ago, in terms of the way they're going to change the world. Most of the thing that you just said is, first of all, the statistics are just amazing. Some of it very disturbing. Well, but I must say that, especially when it comes to battery technology and what it's going to do to EV vehicles over electric vehicles over the next cycle, is going to be quite uh, dramatic. Absolutely. So I think an absolutely investable space. Mark, unfortunately, it looks like we're running a little short on time. I think we should, let's try and see what we can do to sort of sum up things. And let's start with the idea of investing in resilient companies. Think about these winds of change that are constantly sweeping through society, the economy, the markets. They're almost impossible to stop. And our analysts did a lot of job, a lot of work identifying what the attributes are and what are these that are required for these companies that need to be stay relevant, right? Yeah. Resilient. And what they found was innovation, flexibility, and adaptability. Those are the ingredients, are they? To That's the being a resilient That's company. The mix. And if you have those three attributes, chances are you have a reasonably large growth, you have pricing power, customers get added value out of the products and services that you're giving them, and in turn are willing to pay more. Yeah. Right? So it's, I can it's think a, of a lot of examples of that in my own life that I, if you told me I had to pay, I don't know, 50 bucks more for a lot of the 
technology services that I use. And yeah. A lot of them are free right now. Actually, yes. I'd do it. I think that's exactly the thing. So I think that's what we're looking for. These companies also tend to have growth that is independent of the economic cycle. So the ups and downs that we talked about, they stay a little less relevant for them, maybe because they got rid of underperforming businesses or were smart in identifying a mega trend mm -hmm. as, again, the battery situation we just talked about. Yeah. Or maybe they created a brand new market. Actually, the battery applies to that too. And they tend to have well-organized supply chains, and that's essentially important in these days. Yeah, geopolitics are very fragile. And in the midst of a global pandemic, yeah. if you don't have a great supply chain, you're lost. So I'll just say we identified a dozen such companies, and they operate in businesses that are quite different from cosmetics to logistics, so it's all over the place. Pharmaceuticals to financial services, software to streaming services. Resilient companies. Absolutely. Well, Mark. So let's just conclude. The stock market is still in a bull cycle. So our first and foremost advice is stay invested. But the economy has moved past its initial recovery phase, as in the mid-cycle phase. Growth and quality and momentum are the things to own in, such, a, in such an environment. The United States has a lot of that. So it still remains our primary market of choice. But Switzerland, as you mentioned, fits yeah. the bill very, very well too. Then there's the move to common prosperity in China. It's a much bigger thing than we anticipated. It prompted us to actually change our stance on China. India sort of becomes a slight lead because of these policy changes. But there are many good companies outside of China. And as you rightly pointed out, they're yeah. already outperforming. In Asia. And they've sort of accelerated after the new policies that have been announced in, yeah. in China. In fixed income, while it's been a more tricky year, I would say we still are looking at that crossover space. Asian yeah. credits still offer a lot of value. And we think being diversified and selective in your pickings are the way to go. But that's all we have the time for today. So on behalf of Mark and myself and all our colleagues at Julius Baer, thank you for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.